Before we begin this week, I have a few prayer requests to uh, share with all of you. And it's just a reminder to let everybody know, if you already didn't know, that I love to pray. I try my utmost to be in a state of prayer, continuous prayer, all the time, as much as possible. And people that listen to the show love to pray as well. So if you have any prayer requests, please contact me, let me know, and there'll be information at the end of the show on exactly how to do that. So the prayer request that I have to pass on is a woman by the name of Doris. Now, Doris, from what I believe, if my memory serves me correct, sometimes it doesn't. Well, a lot of times it doesn't. Uh, will be 88 years young here in a few weeks. Uh, but Doris has the onset or late onset of dementia, and she's suffering very badly, as well as the two caregivers that take care of her. One is her son, Bob, and the other one is my mother, Elaine. Uh, Doris has been in and out of the hospital quite a bit lately. Uh, as a matter of fact, she just got home late Friday evening from the hospital after being in there almost uh, over a week and a half. Uh, she had pneumonia and she had several infections and a bladder infection. Uh, but, you know, she started getting better, according to the doctors, which, as we know, normally isn't better. You can't get better with dementia. Uh, but anyway, they sent her home. So um, Bob and Elaine have dedicated over 10 years of their life, or I should say have sacrificed over 10 years of their lives to care for Doris. So I'm asking all of you to please pray for Doris, pray, pray for Bob and pray for Elaine, uh, pray for Doris that God's will be done and that, uh, you know, either she can stabilize or that, uh, you know, the divine uh, takes her home. And with Bob and Elaine, please uh, uh, pray for them, for the divine to give them the strength to continue to take care uh, of Doris. They're both up in their years as well, and they're, they should be enjoying their retirement. But here they are, uh, you know, doing such a selfless act of taking care of Doris. Uh, but it's definitely taking a toll on both of their health as well. So please also uh, pray that the divine will heal both of them fully. Next is a prayer for my wife, Haven. I'm asking everyone to please pray for her. She recently went to her doctor, her primary care doctor. And it was the first time in over 30 years that she's been to a doctor because we just couldn't afford insurance before. But, you know, now... You know, by the grace of the divine and Haven's hard work, uh, we've been able to do that. So uh, she is now on a new medication, or at least new for her. Uh, that's, you know, it's been difficult with her mentally and physically adjusting to it and going through uh, the different side effects. Uh, these will pass, but if you could please include Haven in your prayers um, that, you know, she is uh, given the strength and that she gets through these side effects and heals very quickly. Next, we have my dear friend and brother, Mike. He and his wife have been sick for the past week, and they don't have COVID, but it's very much like a flu-type thing, and um, it's it's been really difficult for both of them. Uh, you all should remember Mike. He was 
the great, amazing person that I interviewed a few weeks ago about his life and the 12 steps of how it saved his life. If you haven't yet heard that episode, please, please, please go back and have a listen. But please keep Mike and his wife in your prayers that the divine will uh, heal them both very quickly and fully. And last but certainly not least is my sister's beloved dog, Coco. Now, Coco is a little dachshund, or I believe some people call them dash hounds, uh, but she is suffering from kidney stones. Uh, my amazing sister is an incredible vet tech, so she's been taking care of Coco and changing her diet and the kidney stones are getting better uh, but you know each month they have to monitor because if it gets worse she'll have to be operated on and she is up in her years so we definitely don't want the surgery so if you all could please keep little Coco in your thoughts and prayers that the divine will heal her completely and that she will live a long and healthy life. Thank you all so very much and enjoy the show. Welcome to the Faith and More podcast. I firmly believe that the divine works through people to help us every day. These angels and saints are so very humble. Many of us don't know they exist or existed. Hello, my name is Angel and I'll be your host as we explore the lives of these amazing beings. We will also explore topics that can help your faith, no matter what it is or isn't. The goal of this show is to inspire, encourage, educate, uplift, strengthen, and heal you and your faith. Hello and welcome to the show, everyone. How are you all doing? I so hope and pray that with everything going on in your lives in the world today that you all are doing as well as possible and that you're safe and at peace. Please know that each and every one of you are in my heart and my prayers and if you would like for me and or for people here on the show to pray for you please don't hesitate to reach out to me. There's a couple ways to do that, and I'll have more information on exactly how to do that at the end of the show, if you don't already know. So this is episode 10 for those keeping track at home, and it's hard to believe that uh, this episode is actually the midway point for season two. Aww. I know, right? <laughs> it's but hey, no worries. We're going to keep going uh, regardless of what season it is. You know, if, if you haven't already uh, got the point, I do 20 episodes a season and we didn't take a break from going from season one to season two. I'm not quite sure yet on going from season two to season three, if we're going to take a break or not. But uh, anyway, we're not going to think about that right now because we have other things to think about today. And that thing to think about is the topic for this week's show. Um, this is one of my favorite, most favorite people that is still living today. Um, he is beyond a truly amazing example of peace, love, and compassion. And there's a big correlation between 
what he went through with his country being taken away from uh, taken away from him and his people and what's going on with Russia and, and Ukraine. So who is this person, you may ask? It is none other than His Holiness, the 14th Dalai Lama of Tibet. His story is very interesting, and how he became the Dalai Lama is even more interesting. And there's so many fantastical moments um, in the beginning of his life, and of course throughout his life, that we're going to speak about today. So those of you who are not familiar with His Holiness the 14th Dalai Lama, of course 14 would mean he is the 14th of the Dalai Lamas, and they are one after the other after the other. When one passes away, then that one that passed away is reincarnated into another uh, person in another lifetime, and they continue on and on and on. And as we're going to discuss at the a little bit at the near the end of the show, um, there is uncertainty if there will be a 15th Dalai Lama, and that's kind of up on the uh, talking block, and I will get more into that here in a little bit. So the Dalai Lamas go all the way back uh, to the 1300s, and the very first Dalai Lama was uh, Gindan Dupe, and he was born in 1370 and passed on 1474. He was the age of 104 years old. And he was a disciple of the great Lama Tsongkhapa. And, um, you know, we could probably do a show or shows on Lama Tsongkhapa sometime down the road. Uh, he is an amazing, truly amazing figure in uh, Buddhism and Tibetan Buddhism. And um, if anybody's interested in Lama Tsongkhapa, let me know. I would be more than happy to do a show. Or if you want to wait till we eventually get around to it, if we do, then that's cool too. So the Dalai Lama is actually the spiritual and political leader of the country Tibet. Um, those of you who may not know and those of you who may know, uh, Tibet is not its own country anymore. Tibet was taken over by uh, the Chinese government by force, uh, very much like Russia is doing with Ukraine. Um, unfortunately, the Tibetans did not have the help of NATO because there was no NATO at that time. Uh, they did have a little help from the American CIA force, uh, and that was maybe a week or two of training on how to use antiquated rifles that either worked or most of the time did not work, which, of course, were no match for the great Chinese uh, military uh, that invaded and destroyed, you know, so many lives. And the conflict with Tibet continues today because it's still occupied by China. And China has always believed that Tibet has been their country, uh, much like Russia is saying about Ukraine. Again, you see these similarities uh, between the two or synchronicities, as some may say. Um, but that's not the case. Um, you know, Tibet is more a part of Mongolia than it is a part of China. And, you know, the Dalai Lama line, you know, comes from descendants of Mongolia, 
And it's just, I don't know. It, you, there, you could get, there's tons and tons of books and you can just Google it and, uh, you know, the Tibetan occupation and, and what's going on. It's at genocide is what's going on. It's been genocide for quite some time. And, you know, the, what the Chinese people want or the Chinese government, I should say, not the Chinese people, the Chinese government wants is for Tibetans to be destroyed, to be eliminated, to be um, just gone, extinct. Uh, and they also want their culture, their way of life, their uh, religion. They want that extinct as well. But as we're also seeing, um, China's not just being exclusive with wanting Buddhism extinct. They also want all religions extinct in their country, which they're working very hard at. And especially Christianity is under attack in uh, China because, you know, again, if you're uh, a socialist or communist, you see religion as a threat. You know, if you know that the whole idea is that whoever is the communist or socialist leader is your divine representation or the divine. You know, you worship that person and no other people or no other beings or no other entities or no other energies or nothing. It's um, it's yeah, it's terrible. So if you're, say, Roman Catholic or familiar with Roman Catholicism, the Dalai Lama is kind of similar to the Pope. Um, but if you're looking at a dartboard and you're throwing darts and you were to use that analogy and you threw the dart, it would be on the outer edge. It would be nowhere near the bullseye. Uh, because the Dalai Lamas are believed to be manifestations of uh, a divine energy called Avalokiteshvara, also known as Chinrezi, which is the Bodhisattva of compassion. Now, a Bodhisattva is an entity or being that takes a vow to continue to return lifetime after lifetime after a lifetime until all beings are free from suffering. And that means everybody, not one person left behind. Um, so yeah, it's kind of taking the Marine motto to, to an extreme. But Avalokiteshvara, or also known as Chinrezi, is the patron saint of Tibet, and um, it says here, bodhisattvas are realized beings inspired by a wish to attain Buddhahood or awakening for the benefit of all sentient beings who have vowed to be reborn. They'll be reborn in this world to help humanity over and over and over again. So His Holiness the Dalai Lama is seen as a direct representation or direct um, manifestation is a better word manifestation of uh, Avalokiteshvara, also known as Chinrezi. So His Holiness the Dalai Lama, also known as Tenzin Gyatso, I guess his friends might call him that, <laughs> describes himself as a simple Buddhist monk. And he, he does. I mean, if you've ever uh, seen any videos or been blessed to see him personally, speak, give lectures. Um, he is, like I said, he is the most loving, peaceful, and compassionate person. He's got to be one of the, the highest on the face of the earth. Um, and he always is so extremely humble. 
he doesn't see himself as any high being. He doesn't see himself as better than anybody else. Like he says, he sees himself as a simple monk. And in his later years, as he's in now, he has taken great steps to try to be more of a simple monk. And we'll get into uh, that here in a moment. So His Holiness was born on the 6th of July, 1935, to a farming family in a small hamlet located in Taxter, Amdo province in northeastern Tibet. At the age of two, the child, then named Lamo Dundup, was recognized as the reincarnation of the previous 13th Dalai Lama, Tupton Gyatso. So the 13th Dalai Lama passed away on December 17, 1933, at the age of 57. And he had premonitions that he was going to pass. And the reason why he passed, or he said he was going to pass at such a young age, 57, that is quite young. The reason why he was going to pass at such a young age is so he could reincarnate and be of an age to where the Tibetan people were really, really going to need him, going to need the Dalai Lama. Um, you know, he made hints towards an invasion. Of course, back then, Tibet was Shangri-La. Um, people didn't think within Tibet that they would ever be invaded. It was an extremely... Uh, peaceful and secluded country. Uh, very few people were permitted in Tibet, uh, much like Bhutan uh, used to be, if anyone is familiar with Bhutan. Bhutan is such a, a beautiful and amazing country. And you had to have special um, permission to enter Bhutan uh, if you're a foreigner, and you couldn't be there for, you know, over an extended period of time. They only allowed you so long to be in their country because they wanted to keep their country uh, peaceful, safe, and secure. Now, since, you know, probably within the last 15, 20 years, um, Bhutan has loosened that up to where they're allowing more tourists to come in uh, to the country and stay for ex more extended periods of time. But Tibet was very much the same way. There are two really, really good movies uh, that are about the Dalai Lama or have the or speak about the Dalai Lama. The first movie is called Kundun. It's K-U-N-D-U-N. It's a movie that uh, was made in 1997. Uh, you can get it on Amazon right now for $15.99 uh, US on the DVD. And I highly recommend it because it is about the life of His Holiness the Dalai Lama uh, from the time he was born to the time uh, he left, you know, had to leave Tibet to to flee his country in exile. Um, the other movie is a Brad Pitt movie, if you can believe that or not. It's called Seven Years in Tibet, and it was made around the same time, I believe, if not maybe a year afterwards. Um, and the movie is based on the life of Heinrich Herrer, uh, who was an Australian mountain climber. He and a friend went to Tibet to uh, climb um, the Himalayas in, in the, all the mountainous areas there. Um, and he met His Holiness the Dalai Lama when he was very young. And there's parts of the movie that were, it's about, you know, his relationship and interaction with His Holiness the Dalai Lama and how he shared 
you know, ways of the Western world with uh, His Holiness the Dalai Lama, who did not know. Uh, he had a radio, of course, and he listened to, you know, like BBC radio and stuff like that on shortwave. Uh, but, you know, to actually meet someone and have a relationship with a Western adult, especially an adventurer, a mountain climber, you know, to a kid of any age, that's got to be very fascinating, let alone someone that is living a quite secluded life. And he and His Holiness the Dalai Lama became fast friends. And the movie is, again, really, really good. I can't recommend enough. I'll have links to both of those movies in the show notes um, for anyone that's interested in picking those up from Amazon. So going back to the 13th Dalai Lama, of course, you know, here he is with a premonition about, uh, you know, he's going to die at a young age and that, you know, Tibet is going to be in huge turmoil and that Tibetan people will be scattered all over the face of the earth, he said. Um, in that it was important for him to die at an early age so he could reincarnate and come back and be at an age to where he could help his people with what they were going to face. So what the Dalai Lamas do, some people call it a hide-and-seek game, uh, but what they will do is they will write down um, clues as to where you're going to be able to locate their next incarnation. Um, their next form, their next, you know, person. And the 13th Dalai Lama was no different. He did the same thing. And, you know, I believe they do that for many reasons, one of which is because, you know, they don't just want anyone being picked and chosen. Uh, they want it to be an exact, and they do have a pretty good exact science on picking um, reincarnations. Now, Buddhism believes in reincarnations, Um especially with their, um, you know, great teachers, what, what they refer to as masters. And they don't refer, they don't mean masters as in someone ruling over you and you're a slave to them. They mean like a great high teacher is a master. And that's another name for Lama uh, that they use. It's a, it's a title of teacher. Uh, so they do have, uh, like I said, it's almost like an exact science per se, uh, and so when His Holiness the 13th Dalai Lama passed, of course, they found um, some notes of clues as to where he would be found. So at that time, there was the Panchen Lama, who is like the second or I guess you could say vice president, um, who took charge. And then there was the regent of Tibet. His name was Redding Rinpoche. So Redding Rinpoche was charged with um, finding um, the next Dalai Lama. And he took the notes and went over the notes with the Panchen Lama. And Redding also was an incarnation of a previous teacher or master. So he had a vision when he was at a sacred lake called Lamo Lasso. And he had this clear, very clear vision of three Tibetan letters, Ah, Ka, and Ma, A-H, K-A, and M-A. These are actually Tibetan letters. And the vision continued by him seeing a monastery with a jade green and gold roof and a house with turquoise roof tiles. So again, you have to remember 
the day and age that it was. We're talking 1937 is <laughs> when they did this, or actually before 1937, because 1937 is when they found uh, His Holiness the Dalai Lama. Um, so, you know, of course there's no internet, there's no GPS, there's no, you know, fast moving vehicles. Uh, it's all hiking on foot or by, you know, horse or mule. Um, and if you're, anybody's familiar with Tibetan terrain, it is very rocky, mountainous. Uh, it's not flat land. Uh, there's not much flat land. So it's, it's very difficult travel and it's very time consuming travel. So again, here you are with these, you know, bits of information um, as well as the notes uh, from the previous Dalai Lama on, hey, this is where you can find me. So uh, Redding Rinpoche organized three uh, search teams. Uh, one went to the east, one went to the northeast and one went to the southeast um, from the Patala Palace at the capital of Tibet, uh, which is, again, going based on the information that the 13th Dalai Lama provided them. And each search team was to, you know, locate a child or candidates and then report back to Redding. Um, and, you know, then he would, you know, meet with the child or children and, you know, discern which one, uh, which candidates were probable or not. Um, again, there's very specific ways that they do that. Some of the ways they do that is, and this is going to blow your mind, is they will take personal belongings of a person. So say the 13th Dalai Lama, they'll take his personal possessions, some of his personal possessions, like his mala, which is also like in, if you're Roman Catholic, that would be a rosary. Um, if you're um, Eastern uh, Catholic Orthodox, that would be a prayer rope. Um, it would be prayer beads for, you know, Muslim or any other faith. So, you know, and, you know, other ritual items that were used, again, personal items. And they just don't take these items and, and show them to the children. They mix them up with other items that are similar so say you have a, uh, a rosary or a mala, as it's called in Buddhism, and you would not just put the one mala on a table. You'd put several malas on the table, and they're varying from, from different looks and sizes and shapes and you know things that you know most children are going to pick out the one that's going to bling the most. You know, It's going to stand out. They're not going to pick the one. Uh, that belonged to them in a previous lifetime, unless it is, you know, them. The movie Kundun does really, really good at showing you uh, a bit into this, uh, this way of discernment. So a child was found, and they believed that he could possibly be the incarnation of the 13th Dalai Lama. Of course, all of the boxes checked as far as the vision uh, Redding Rinpoche had, and of course the notes, to the best that they could, the cryptic notes that the 13th Dalai Lama ma uh, made matched uh, the area and, you know, everything checked out. Uh, so Redding went to meet with uh, His Holiness the Dalai Lama, well, before he was, he was age two. Now you're thinking, this is a two-year-old child or two-year-old baby, okay? The first thing that struck um, Redding was when he met 
His Holiness the Dalai Lama, again, age two, uh, and his mother, he was wearing around his neck the mala of the 13th Dalai Lama. Well, the two-year-old Dalai Lama reached for the mala and kept saying, mine, mine. And so Redding let him have it and let him play with it. And of course, he's clicking through the beads and he's doing that. And, you know, like any child would do, but, you know, there's more to it, you know, as if he has done this before. And his parents were farming people. They, you know, they didn't, you know, they were Buddhist, but, you know, they didn't train him on how to do. No one trains a two-year-old how to, how to do a mala back in 1930, what, 1937? <laughs> they may today, but not back then they didn't. And so um, Redding spoke with the parents about the birth of um, the child because there were notes in the 13th Dalai Lama's encrypted, you know, come find me uh, list that were based on how the childbirth went, you know, the parents you know, and, and so forth. And so he was able to validate uh, different things from that. And again, he was impressed by the child, you know, grabbing the mala and saying it was his. But again, he was thinking also what two year old wouldn't grab something you know, like a necklace and say it's theirs. Um, so when he went to take the mala back as he was leaving, because he told the parents, he, you know, the usual, I have some other people to look at and I'll come back later. <laughs> the routine. Because um, he didn't want to instill in them, you know, too much and then them try to prompt the child, you know. They, he still wanted the surprise element to be afoot. And so as he went to take the mala back from his holiness he threw a fit and was screaming and was crying and his mother could not console him for nothing it broke his little heart that his mala was taken away from him uh, so Redding Rinpoche left and went to go get some other uh, higher ups within the um, Tibetan Buddhist faith and he went to get also um, other items, personal items of the 13th Dalai Lama. Now, this coming back to meet with them again, he brought a different mala and different possessions. So, you know, his holiness wouldn't go straight for that mala again saying mine. So he went to a room and he set all these items up on the on the table and then they brought in the young Dalai Lama, two years old. Remember, this is a two-year-old baby. Brings his two-year-old child into the room. And they talk to him. And they tell him that, you know, we want you to pick out from these items. And there was a ton. Again, Kundun, the movie Kundun really shows you some of this. It's, it's, it blows your mind. And tells the boy to pick out which ones are his so you know of course he goes over and he's touching the different malas and he's looking at them and he picks this one and says mine and then you know there's a ritual bell a handheld bell and he's picking each one up and he's not only looking at it but he's ringing it and listening to the sound and then he finds the one that's his and he says mine 
And he goes on and on and does this. And he picked every item accurately that was the 13th Dalai Lama's. So, of course, there's other things that they do to uh, ensure that the, the accuracy of, you know, that this is the 13th Dalai Lama. And again, um, this young boy checked all the boxes and, you know, they explained to the parents that, yes, uh, your son is the incarnation of a high llama. Uh, they didn't go into detail at that time exactly how high he was. Uh, and the parents didn't know that, you know, they thought they were just looking for an incarnation of a, a teacher, you know, another teacher who had passed away, uh, which, you know, is the custom in Tibetan Buddhism. Uh, they didn't know that it was going to be the, uh, the, you know, the incarnation of the 13th Dalai Lama. So over the course of two years, uh, it was, you know, they spoke with the family and, you know, time and time again, re um, investigated to make sure and re-reviewed the evidence and the child because of course in two years he goes from age two to four <laughs> a lot can change right <laughs> but again he still always checked all the boxes so of course they broke the news to the family that you know he was the incarnation of the 13th Dalai Lama uh, of course they're overjoyed but you've got to understand um, what this entails. Now, it doesn't mean um, that the whole family goes to Lhasa, which is the capital, or was the capital of Tibet, to the Patala Palace, which is the seat of the Dalai Lama, or was the seat of the Dalai Lama. Um, they can move to Lhasa, but their interaction with their child is very limited because... Um, the training in re-education of an incarnate is very rigorous. Um, you know, this is like um, a monastic on steroids. If anybody's familiar with, you know, you know, any of the Catholic priests or monks or nuns or sisters, this is their training times an infinite amount. <laughs> It is. It's 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 their training on steroids. It really is. Um, and they have to have um, privacy with the child to train them because they don't want distractions. Uh, yes, the child can see the parents um, occasionally, you know, like during the week or you know here and there. But they stay in a monastic setting. They become monks. Um, so if you could only imagine a four-year-old child becoming a monk and trying to wrap their mind around, you know, what this is. Now, some people might instantly say this is child abuse, and it, it's not. It's not. Again, watch the movie Kundun, and you'll see, you know, yes, there are trials and tribulations that go along with it. Uh, but the end note is, is definitely worthy of the trials and tribulations. So at the age of four years young, His Holiness the Dalai Lama took the throne and became the religious and political leader of Tibet. Now, that doesn't mean <laughs> that they cut the four-year-old loose on running the country. Um, the Panchen Lama was still in charge as well uh, as Regent Redding. Uh, Regent Redding was also more in charge of the training uh, for His Holiness. 
And the two became uh, very, very good friends um, up until the point where um, His Holiness left the country uh, in, to go into in, exile. So they gave uh, the Dalai Lama a little time to transition, two years. So at the age of six, His Holiness began his monastic education. The curriculum derived from the Nalanda tradition consisted of five major and five minor subjects. The major subjects include logic, fine arts, Sanskrit grammar, and medicine. But the greatest emphasis was given to Buddhist philosophy, which was further divided into a further five categories. Prajnaparimita, the perfection of wisdom, Madhyamika, the philosophy of the middle way, Vinaya, the canon of monastic discipline, Abhidharma, which is metaphysics, and Pramana, which is logic and epistemology. The five minor subjects include poetry, drama, astrology, composition, and synonyms. So this training went from the age of six to the age of 23. At the age of 23, His Holiness sat for his final examination in Lhasa's Jokyong Temple, during the annual Great Prayer Festival, which is Manlong Chinmo in Tibetan. This was in 1959. He passed with honors and was awarded the Geshe Larampa degree, equivalent to the highest doctorate in Buddhist philosophy. So he got his master's degree at the age of 23. In 1950, China began its invasion of Tibet. His Holiness was called upon to assume full political power in 1954. This was five years before he graduated. He went to Beijing and met with Mao Zedong. Uh, and he was 19 years old when he did this. And other Chinese leaders, he uh, was asking them, he spent the day with them, and asked them to, you know, stop the invasion of Tibet, that, you know, assured them that Tibet is a peaceful nation and is of, of no danger or, you know, anything to China and would, you know, would never do anything against China. But you know, they led him to believe that they were going to call it off, but they didn't. They were just playing games with him. Uh, so finally, in 1959, Following the brutal uh, suppression of Tibetan national uprising in Lhasa by Chinese troops, His Holiness was forced to escape into exile. Since then, he has been living in Dharamsala, northern India. He was aged 24 when he had to flee his country. Because if he didn't, they were going to kill him. So, Redding Rinpoche and the Panchen Lama stayed behind. And um, Redding went through a lot of crap because there were a lot. And this is politics, po even in Buddhism, politics. Um, a lot of people turned and took the side of the Chinese, uh, including Buddhist teachers. And they turned on Redding and um, made up a bunch of garbage about him. You know, talking about him being a womanizer and all this. It's 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 really, really horrible and false and then they said that he committed suicide well later come to find out he was actually poisoned so his own people killed him uh, as far as the Panchen Lama um, he was captured in 1964 um, and he was tortured and 
was to denounce the Dalai Lama and to denounce his country, and he refused, and he passed away in 1989. Well, of course, as we've discovered, these people continue to come around because these are bodhisattvas, people who have made vows to continue to return time and time again, lifetime after lifetime, until all beings are free from suffering, right? So this is like eternity, right? <laughs> so, of course, the same goes for the Panch Lama. A child uh, was found in the early 90s, 1990s, um, and his name was Gundan Choki Nina, uh, N-Y-I-M-A, Nima. Uh, and so this child, who was maybe two, three years old, uh, was recognized as the incarnation of the Panchen Lama. Um, so what happened? Word got to the Chinese officials and they took the child from the parents. Um, this Panchen Lama is known as the youngest political prisoner ever. He was abducted on May 17th, 1995, and has not been heard from since. I'm talking about today, 2022, this year, since May 17th, 1995, that child has not been seen or heard from again. But what happened? The Chinese chose their own Panchen Lama. And this gets into a whole new political flavor. And why would they do this? Because they know how the Tibetan people look to these teachers uh, as icons, you know, as divine uh, representations or divine presence in human form. You know, I don't want to say like Jesus, but again, like Jesus, you know, similar, similar. Um, you might say angels, angels in, in human human form. They look to these beings as such. So therefore, you know, they have great respect and homage. They don't. um worship they don't um blindly follow they just have this great respect and these people encourage uplift strengthen they keep the people going and if you can have a chinese appointed panchen lama or a chinese appointed dalai lama which we're going to get into here later on that shifts the whole control over Tibet to where the Tibetan people will follow this person or that person. And of course, conform to uh, the communist ways. So again, the, you know, 19 year old Dalai, excuse me, 24 year old Dalai Lama flees his country, has to leave his country. Uh, his older brother stayed behind and actually led some freedom fighters uh, but that was very short-lived, and his brother had to flee as well. Um, his brother lived out his days in Bloomington, Indiana, in the United States. So anybody that's in the area of Bloomington, Indiana, or ever in the area of Bloomington, Indiana, I highly recommend going to the Tibetan Cultural Center. I'll have a link in the description. I've been there a few times, and it is an amazing, beautiful place that His Holiness's older brother founded and actually lived on the premises with his family. Uh, descendants of his family still live uh, in Bloomington. Um, and it's it's such a beautiful and amazing and place. And His Holiness the Dalai Lama has been there several times, of course. Um, so again, if you're ever in that area, check them out. You won't regret it.
So the long journey, he makes it to um, India in blessings to uh, the Indian government for allowing the Tibetans to flee, uh, the refugees to flee into their country and giving them exile. Um, so once in exile, His Holiness set up a central Tibetan administration um, and appealed to the United Nations to consider the question of Tibet. The General Assembly adopted three resolutions on Tibet in 1959, 1961, in 1965 but of course as we see that did absolutely nothing because china still occupies tibet today and they have been in occupation of tibet since 1959 so what are we talking 62 63 almost 63 years it's yeah it's it's a mess and the poor people of tibet suffer still and again i do mean poor people a lot of the authentic Tibetan people, the few that are left in Tibet, um, are homeless. They are considered to be lower than a dog or a rat. Um, and Chinese people treat them as such. And Chinese government treats them worse than that. Um, if you practice your faith, um, you are thrown in prison. And they call those galugs. And it's not just a prison as we have here in the United States where you have cable TV and three meals a day and a nice workout room to uh, hang out in and, and build your muscles. It's torture. And they do torture you. It's very miserable situations and living conditions. It's highly deplorable. And it's it, it they're focused on genocide and nothing short of that. I mean, during the invasion, uh, monks and nuns were raped and killed. Their monasteries were burned. Their books, uh, their holy texts, uh, which you could consider to be like the Bible or any of the writings from the writers uh, after the Bible, you know, expanding on and commenting on uh, the Bible so you could learn it more, were burned. You know, very few texts, authentic texts, still survive um, today. It's so in exile, His Holiness wanted to do one of the first things was to draft a constitution um, while in exile. It was called the Charter of Tibetans in Exile, and it uh, democratizes uh, the Tibetan government. So there's no, you know, it's, it's, it's a democracy. It's no longer, you know, one person says all, one person goes for all. But there were some small groups of uh, Tibetan politicians and politics that hung on uh, up until the 1990s. In May of 1990, um, the Tibetan uh, government in exile was fully democratized, which got rid of the Tibetan cabinet, which was also known as the Kashog. Um, that was gone. They dissolved the 10th Assembly of Tibetan People's Deputies. You know, all of these things to help with democracy and help with freedom um, for the people in exile of Tibet. On the 21st of September 1987, um, His Holiness the Dalai Lama gave an address to the United States Congress in Washington, D.C. Um, he proposed a five-point peace plan for Tibet as a first step towards a peaceful solution of the worsening situation in Tibet. And the five points are as follows, transformation of the whole of Tibet into a zone of peace, abandonment of Chinese population transfer policy that threatens the very existence of Tibetans as people, 
respect the Tibetan people's fundamental human rights and democratic freedoms, restoration and protection of Tibet's natural environment and the abandonment of China's use of Tibet for the production of nuclear weapons and dumping of nuclear waste. Tibet is very rich in uranium. And with all that open space, there's plenty of space to dump your nuclear waste. Um, and number five, commencement of earnest negotiations on the future status of Tibet, of relations between the Tibetan and Chinese peoples. On June 15, 1988, in an address to members of the European Parliament in Strasbourg, His Holiness further elaborated on the last point of the five-point peace plan. He proposed talks between the Chinese and Tibetans leading to a self-governing governing democratic political entity for all three provinces of Tibet. This entity would be in association with the People's Republic of China and the Chinese government would continue to be responsible for Tibet's foreign policy and defense. And as you can just imagine, nothing came from that. Uh, Of course, Chinese uh, People's Republic of Chinese government says it's all or nothing. So... It's all, period. You do as we say. You're ours. You, we own you. You are our property. Your country is ours. Um, no deal. His Holiness the Dalai Lama is a man of peace. In 1989, he was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize for his nonviolent struggle for the liberation of Tibet. He has consistently advocated policies of nonviolence, even in the face of extreme aggression. He also became the first Nobel laureate to be recognized for his concern for global environmental problems. His Holiness has traveled to more than 67 countries spanning six continents. He has received over 150 awards, honorary doctrines, prizes, and more in recognition of his message of peace, nonviolence, interreligious understanding, universal responsibility, and compassion. He has also authored and co-authored more than 110 books. I always had people when I taught uh, Buddhism and Eastern philosophy, always had people ask me to rec- if I could recommend one book by His Holiness, what would that book be? And I always said without hesitation, it would be and has to be The Art of Happiness by His Holiness the Dalai Lama, and I'll have a link to that in the, in the show notes. And the reason for that is, it is the book that actually turned me on to him, and um, my wife and I just happened to be at a mall, and I looked up and saw his face on the cover, and I was immediately drawn to him and to the book, picked it up, just started flipping through it, and immediately bought it, and fell in love with it head over heels. It is such an amazing um, work and, and book. You will absolutely love it. His Holiness has held discussions with heads of different religions and participated in many events promoting interreligious harmony and understanding. Since the mid-1980s, His Holiness has engaged in a dialogue with modern scientists, mainly in the fields of psychology, neurobiology, quantum physics and cosmology. This has led to a historic collaboration between Buddhist monks 
and world-renowned scientist in trying to help individuals achieve peace of mind. It has also resulted in the addition of modern science to the traditional curriculum of Tibetan monastic institutions reestablished in exile. And if I could just elaborate on that for just a moment, um, there are so many amazing and very mind-blowing, interesting aspects of Tibetan Buddhism. Um, again, just Google um, Tibetan Buddhist monks being monitored uh, as they meditate. Their brainwaves and brainwave patterns are amazing when they're in deep meditation. There's also uh, yogic practices uh, within Tibetan Buddhism um, for harnessing the energy of your body. One of those such things is called tumo. And what tumo can do is you meditate and you can focus on uh, your heart uh, area and you increase the heat in your body to the point to where you can keep yourself warm um, and you can actually heat the area, like a little bit of an area around you. Again, if you Google this or YouTube this, uh, Tumo, it's T-U-M-M-O, you will find all kinds of really cool videos on uh, monks showing you how to do this. And one of the most popular videos is these monks sitting in like their yogi thong um, in the snow in like below zero weather. And you can see the steam coming off of them as they radiate this heat, this, you know, inner warmth, this tumo energy. And then they have a guy take blankets and soak them in ice cold water. And then they throw the blankets over the monks and they will actually dry the blankets uh, by using the tumo. But it's, it's a meditation practice. There's nothing... Uh, sorcery or witchcraft or anything behind it. It's a mind over matter or mind um, working with matter principle. It's very scientific and it, it's, it's, it's just one of the many neat little facets uh, that's so intriguing and amazing that's in Tibetan Buddhism. So of course, His Holiness the Dalai Lama is allowing monks to be monitored so, so scientists can, um, you know, scientifically uh, figure out how this is done and how it can help others. You know, people who are stranded in the cold, stranded in blizzards. Say if you are in a region where you're in a blizzard and your car breaks down and you, you know, have no way to stay warm, you could practice TUMO to help generate that inner heat and regulate that to where you don't, uh, you know, get hypothermia and die. Um, say you fall through ice in, in a lake, you could, you know, focus on generating that TUMO and again, not succumb to hypothermia and, and die. It's, you know, there's so many benefits that can come from that, as well as so many things Tibetans can learn from modern science, modern philosophy, uh, neurobiology, quantum physics. They, they are so into quantum physics, Tibetan Buddhists are, and cosmology. It's, 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 it'll blow your mind. So they're actually teaching each other, you know, Western versus Eastern. It's, it's really good stuff. So on March 14th, 2011, His Holiness wrote to the Assembly of Tibetan People's Deputies, which is their parliament in exile, requesting it to relieve him of his temporal authority. 
since according to the charter of Tibetans in exile, he was technically still the head of state. He announced that he was ending the custom by which the Dalai Lamas had wielded spiritual and political authority in Tibet. He intended, he made clear, to resume the status of the first four Dalai Lamas in which they were only concerned with spiritual affairs. He confirmed that the democratically elected leadership would assume complete formal responsibility for Tibetans' political affairs. The formal office and household of the Dalai Lamas, the Gaden Fondron, would henceforth only fulfill that function. So in essence, he was, again, bringing more democracy to Tibetan government that, you know, one pope should not be in charge of all and there should be a democratic process in that he needed to focus on spiritual matters. He had no problem being um, the head of the spiritual um, ways of Tibetan people, but the politics in running the governments in exile needed to be given over to um, you know, to the parliament. And that's exactly what he did. So his holiness, the Dalai Lama making the first official remark on his retirement from political responsibilities during a public teaching at the main Tibetan temple in Dharamsala was in March 19, 2011. On the 29th of May, 2011, his holiness signed the document formally transferring his temporal authority to democratically elected leaders in so doing he formally put an end to the 368-year-old tradition of the Dalai Lama's functioning as both the spiritual and temporal head of Tibet. As far back as 1969, His Holiness made clear that whether or not a reincarnated Dalai Lama should be recognized was a decision for the Tibetan people, the Mongolians and people of the Himalaya region, to make. However, in the absence of clear guidelines, there was a clear risk that should the concerned public express a strong wish to recognize a future Dalai Lama, vested interests interest, could exploit the situation for political ends, i.e. the Chinese government. Therefore, on to the 24th, excuse me, easy for you to say, of September 2011, clear guidelines for the recognition of the next Dalai Lama were published, leaving no room for doubt or deception. His Holiness has declared that when he is about 90 years old, he's 86 now, he'll be 87 this year, um, year 2022, if you're listening, in this year. <laughs> When he is about 90 years old, he will consult leading lamas of Tibetan Buddhist traditions, the Tibetan public, and others concerned people with an interest in Tibetan Buddhism, and assess whether the institution of Dalai Lama should continue after him. His statement also explored the different ways in which the recognition of a successor could be done. If it is decided that a 15th Dalai Lama should be recognized, responsibility for doing so will rest primarily on the concerned officers of the Dalai Lama's Gadenfondrung Trust. They should consult the various heads of the Tibetan Buddhist traditions and the reliable oath-bound Dharma protectors, which are teachings of the Buddha, that's what Dharma is, who are linked inseparably to the lineage of the Dalai Lama's. 
They should seek advice and direction from these concerned parties and carry out the procedures of search and recognition in accordance with their instruction. His Holiness has stated that he will leave clear written instructions about this. He further warned that apart from a reincarnation recognized through such legitimate methods, no recognition or acceptance should be given to a candidate chosen for political ends by anyone, including agents of the People's Republic of China. So he's trying to make it as crystal clear as possible um, as to that it's it's up to the democratic process of the people of not only Tibet, but also Mongolia, because they recognize the Dalai Lama um, to decide if there should be a 15th Dalai Lama after him. Now he plans, he says, to live to be 100 years old. Um, I'm sure at this pace he will probably, you know, minus a major catastrophe, he'll probably live to be that age or older, um, uh, especially now that he's retired as far as being a political leader and can focus more on being a spiritual leader, which, you know, is his heart and what he loves to do. But again, it's good that he's clarifying these things and that, you know, he said, you know, he will leave a note of if he incarnates or reincarnates um clearer instructions than the usual hide-and-seek notes uh, of the previous Dalai Lamas. And of course, with today's technology, that that helps out a lot. So I don't know. It's kind of a wait-and-see thing. I do hope and pray with all my heart that he lives for as long as possible. Um, I highly recommend everyone checking him out if you're not already familiar with His Holiness the 14th Dalai Lama. All you got to do is pick up a book, uh, the Art of Happiness, for one, or just Google him or look at some videos on YouTube. There's so many amazing uh, teachings and lectures that he's given uh, that are on YouTube that you can check out that are just mind-blowing. And it, it doesn't matter what your faith or not. Um, there's so much that he talks about uh, that resonate or resonate for everyone, again, regardless of your beliefs. So those of you who have been listening to the show for any period of time know that one of the things that I strive to do is to try to bring clarity and truth and to get rid of get rid of disinformation about beliefs and faiths and philosophies and things of that nature that have over time just been totally ambushed and critique the absolute wrong way examples buddhism uh, most christians believe that buddhists are devil worshipers and that their ritual practice are devil worshiping and that they worship the buddha and the buddha is their god and again that i've touched on this briefly in other podcasts and shows and that's absolutely wrong there is no truth to that at all the buddha was a teacher plain and simple he was not a God. He was is not God. He's not seen as God. Uh, again, he's seen as a teacher. He's not worshipped. His teachings are put into practice. They're analyzed rigorously. Um, as the Buddha always said, you know, whatever he taught, put it into practice. If it works for you, great. Use it. If it doesn't, throw it away. He never said, you know, this is the rule and this is law and this is what you'll do and damned if you don't or 
As some Christians say, if you don't do this, you're going to hell. He never, ever once said that. In fact, he taught and showed people the way to avoid hell, hell realms. Buddhists believe in hell realms, which means more than one hell. They believe that there's hot hell realms, that there's cold hell realms, that there's all kinds of suffering in between. If you're ever interested in exactly what the Buddhists believe on that, Look up the wheel of life. Uh, Google it on, uh, you know, regarding Buddhism, the wheel of life, or even um, look it up on uh, YouTube. It was absolutely one of the best and favorite teachings I ever gave. I believe I taught it three or four times. It's actually a sequence of probably four or five teachings. Uh, because it's very in-depth, it's very long, but it's amazing, and it shows you the cycle of birth and death and everything that happens to you from A to Z and between and how you can navigate life to avoid the trip falls, hazards, and landmines that pop up in your life uh, to keep you on uh, the right path in I'm going to share a little bit more on that here in just a second. So instead of doing a prayer for the week, I want to share um, one of the key, many key uh, Buddhist teachings called the Metta Sutta, in, or also known as a sutra. And Metta means loving kindness, and Sutta or Sutra uh, means teaching or rule. And what it means is like a golden rule, like not follow this or you'll go to hell. It means, you know, this if you follow this, then this will happen kind of thing. Um, and it's translated to be the Buddha's words of kindness. And it goes like this. And this this will give you a, a general idea of what Buddhists are and what Buddhists are to be. So if you run into or encounter a Buddhist who's not um, in line with these principles, then you'll know that that person is probably not a true Buddhist or they're a wavering Buddhist or just like any other religion. It's what you put into it. You know, there's, there's, there's good and there's negative. So here is the Metta Sutta or also known as the Metta Sutra. It says, this is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud and demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove wishing in gladness and in safely may all things be at ease whatever living beings there may be whether they are weak or strong omitting none the great or the mighty medium short or small the seen and the unseen those living near and far away those born and to be born may all beings be at ease let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. 
Even as a mother protects with her life, her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will, whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding by not holding to fixed views, the pure hearted one having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires is not born again into this world. So that was kind of their version of a path to freedom, a path from suffering, a path from, you know, the garbage. And if you follow those steps, you know, that's what will follow according to Buddhist beliefs, uh, regardless of the denomination of Buddhism. And I want to point out something or elaborate on something when it says um, cherish all living beings. They mean exactly that all living beings, not just humans. It means animals, insects. It goes on and on. Any living being, whether born or not. So that also goes for pregnancies, um, the child that is born. Again, cherish all living beings. So I will pause here for now. Thank you all so very much for listening. I so hope and pray that you have found what you have been searching for in this show and that it is even more than what you have been looking for and that it continues to be that for you. I am so very open, as I've always said and will say, for suggestions and recommendations for the show. We have people listening from all over the world and each week I see on the statistics that there's more and more people from more and more different countries listening. And that is so amazing and an infinite thanks and blessings to each of you. But I know that you all have amazing angels and saints in your country, in your culture that we don't know about. It could be past. It could be present that we don't know about, but we should know about. So please, please, please contact me share this information with me, or at least point me in a direction where I can go and find information so we can start sharing these amazing beings of your country and cultures with the rest of the world. Next is prayers. I love to pray. Those of you who've been following the show know that more than anybody. I try my level best to be in a continuous state of prayer, and prayer is so very important to our listeners too, and they love to pray. So why not let us pray for you? In order to do that, you can either email me or you can fill out a form that's on the website. And I'll give that information here in just a moment. But please, 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 please reach out to us. Let us know your prayer intentions. It can be for you, a loved one, a friend, uh, for anything going on in the world right now. And there is so much going on. But we would love to pray with you and for you. So there's two ways to contact me. The first would be through email, and that is at Faith and More Podcast, all one word, Faith and More Podcast at gmail.com. The second is through our website, which I highly recommend the website because it's so easy to listen to the show 
through the website as well as get the show notes. And there's so much important information in the show notes that if you only listen on iTunes or Spotify or one of those other platforms, you're missing out on the show notes. And I don't want anyone to miss out on anything with the show. It's so very important that you get everything that's offered. And it's absolutely free. So the website is Faith and More Podcast. Again, all one word, Faith and More Podcast dot Wix site, W-I-X-S-I-T-E dot com slash my dash site. Again, that's Faith and More Podcast dot Wixsite dot com slash my dash site. If you like the show, I hope you continue to return. And if you really like the show, I so hope that you share the show with a friend, family, anyone that you think that can uh, benefit from the show. And also, please subscribe and follow. And there's this new thing called rating, which can be done on Spotify and Apple Podcast, where you can actually rate the show. If you rate the show, it actually moves the show up into categories where people can access it more. So it's another great way to get the show out to as many people as possible. Because at this moment, we don't have sponsors. We don't have ads or anything like that that can help circulate the show. So right now, it's all based on us. And that's word of mouth and sharing with others. So please, 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 if you like the show, really like the show, please share it with as many people as possible. So infinite thanks and blessings to each of you once again for listening. I so hope and pray I see you again next week. Please know that each and every one of you are in my heart and in my prayers. And don't forget, love yourself and love each other.